All right, we're in the book of Exodus, and if you all would be so kind as to turn your Bibles to the third chapter, we're going to go back and cover a few things. Um, If you've been in one of my classes before, you know I like to get out ahead of what we're going to talk about the following week. So um, what we're going to do today is we're going to go back and we're going to cover some of the things that we talked about last week in greater detail. And so, um, as is our want, uh, chapter 3. When last we left Moses, he had killed an Egyptian, buried him in the sand, and the next day he was trying to break up a fight between two Hebrews, and the two Hebrews said, are you our master, are are we supposed to serve you, are you our leader, that we should follow what you say, what about this Egyptian you killed? So um, Moses knew the jig was up, and he knew Pharaoh was going to kill him, so he fled to Midian. And if you have your maps from last week, you can look to see where Midian is. Remind yourself of that. Um, if you don't have a map, uh, we can get some printed for you. Because I, I keep bringing them. I'll bring them. Every, I'll bring it every week just in case somebody's visiting and needs a map of that part of the country. So if we need that, we can do that. So Moses is keeping the flocks of his father Jethro on the mountain of God. And what happens next? What does he see? Burning bush. How many times have you read the episode of the burning bush and just read right on past it to something else and not stopped to contemplate a bush that's burning and is not consumed? Have you ever thought about that? Have you ever given it any thought at all? Okay. So let's talk about that. Let's talk about this burning bush that is not consumed, and what that represents. Because it represents a number of things. And when you, once you start thinking about this, these things will come rapidly to your mind, and you'll do a, "How did I miss this?" What does fire represent when it's concerned with God? What does fire represent? Destruction, Destruction in some cases, in other cases, it represents. His presence, his power, a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. So it signifies protection. Now what does the bush represent? What is he protecting? What is he protecting? With this fire and a bush that is not burned up. It's not consumed. It's not destroyed. What does that bush represent? The children of Israel. The children of Israel are going to be protected by God. They're not going to be consumed. Okay? Now that's one analogy. Now let's take that analogy out to its logical extension. What else could that burning bush represent? What else could it represent? Represent the church. How many times in the New Testament do we read... Peter, in 1 Peter, talks about you're about to go through what? Fiery trials. God protects the church. It is his institution. His son died for it. He will not allow his church to be consumed. What else? There are several other things. I, I just right off the bat, I could think of. What else? Well, if God's presence protects the church, what, are the, what is the church made up of? Christians, individuals, 
Does God not promise his protection to the Christian? We will not be consumed. What about this book we read? How many times down through history have men tried to destroy the Bible? God has protected it. God will not allow his book to be consumed. God will not allow his church, his people, his Bible, the children of Israel. He will not allow any of those to be consumed. They are his. They are his. He owns them. He owns you. What does the song say? He owns me, the sinner. And so to read past the significance of the burning bush is to miss something that God has put in place as a symbol. I mean, granted, it's, it's, it's something that's unusual. And if it's unusual, God has a purpose when he puts it there. Yeah. Sure. Who else would there have been? At that time, in that period in history, who else would there have been? Who had served 40 years in Pharaoh's court? Who knew everything about the court? Who knew everything about Pharaoh and how duties were handled on a daily basis? Who better to act as a go-between between the court and the people? Jesus is our go-between. He is our mediator. That's why the writer of Hebrews spends an inordinate amount of time comparing Jesus and Moses. They were both mediators for their people. He mediated for Pharaoh's court to the people. Jesus mediates for us to who? To God. Sure. Also represents eternal destruction. So it has it, it takes it takes many it takes many forms. Many forms. I for one have no greater respect for anyone than for firefighters. I couldn't do that job. I don't like fire. And I think that's why God presents eternal destruction as fire. Because everybody knows about fire. Everybody's been burned. Everybody knows how that feels. And everybody goes out of their way to avoid, to avoid that very thing. So now as we, as, we, as we go further into this chapter, what we're going to see is some things come up that are going on between God and Moses. And what I want you to do is I want you to take note of the things that Moses says and see if you can apply those to the Christian walk. That when, when we're asked to do something by God. What are we asked, what are we asked to do by God? What, is God? what does God task us with doing? To be as holy as he is. How about Matthew 28? What does he ask us to do in Matthew 28? Go and make disciples of all nations. We're to go and preach the word. You preach that word from the pulpit. You preach that word from when you're teaching a class. You teach that word to other people in your everyday lives by the way you comport yourself. Now, there's a lot written about Moses. A lot written about Moses. If you look back in Genesis, there's only 17 chapters that devote themselves to Abraham. Now, that's quite a few chapters, 17. But we've got 40 plus to talk about Moses. So he obviously plays a very key role. The book of Hebrews spends the most of its time comparing Moses and Jesus. So Moses is an important character. But he, like us, will make excuse. 
And that's what he does. What's his first excuse? Who am I? Who am I? Now, God's going to tell him who God is. God is going to answer his eye with my eye, who I am, God says. So Moses is going to quickly be put in place. Numbers 12 and 3 tells us that Moses was the meekest man who's ever lived. There's no one more humble. But I see in this, this who am I, what you might label as false humility. It's kind of the, come on now, who am I? Come on. I've just lived 40 years in Pharaoh's court. Now, you remember, he's 80, right? He's 80 by now. I've lived, in 40, I've lived 40 years in Pharaoh's court. I know all that stuff. I'm, I'm good at all these things, but come on, Lord, who am I? Who am I? False humility does not give you the right to disobey God. God didn't accept that reason. God didn't accept that excuse, and that's what, exactly what it is. Now, you remember Paul told us in Romans 12, 3, not to think more highly of ourselves, but there is a, there's an area in there for humility for each person, and there's also an area where it falls outside the realm of humility and becomes false humility, and that's not what God is looking for. Yeah. Well, and that's, and that's the whole Yeah. Yeah. And that's what they ask. They, what's, that's what they ask Moses. They say, well, <laughs> who are you? And now Moses has turned that question around to God. Who am I? Well, I can't do this. Why don't you find somebody else? And we know God couldn't. We know God wouldn't find anybody else. It is not Moses. In the final analysis, it is not Moses that's going to deliver the people. Who's going to deliver the people? God is going to deliver the people, not Moses. God though works with men and through men in the Old Testament to get his to make his will done because he says he says I'll be with you he said that in Matthew 28 and lo I am with you always even into the consummation of the age so God is always going to be with us so it's not who am I that Moses should have asked who am I it should have asked here my Lord send me And so that's his first excuse. So, again, how many times, how many times have we been asked to do something and we say, who am I? I can't do that. I can't get up in front of a congregation and lead a prayer. I can't teach a a children's Bible class. I'm not qualified. Who am I? You know, I often say, and I told the boys this when they were growing up, If you say, I can't do something, you just as much as said, I won't do it. And so we can do it. If God wants us to do it, he'll give us a way. He'll lead us. But we need to say, here, my Lord, send me. All right? So that was the first one. He tells Moses in verse 12 of chapter 3 that I'll be with you. I will be with you. And this will be a sign for you. When you bring the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. All right, so the second excuse. What is the second excuse? Well, I go to the people. Lord, if I go to the people, what if they say, who sent you? Who sent you? Who sent you? And that's the very thing that Pharaoh does ask. When they tell him, the Lord has sent us, he said, I don't know the Lord. 
Now, maybe that's a, maybe that's a, 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 I read one scholar this week that said maybe Pharaoh didn't know God as they knew God by that same name. Because in this, you'll see, you'll see God's name represented in several different ways. There's the Lord, and it should be all caps, right? All caps, the Lord, and that's the, that's the Hebrew word that's, that is what? What is, what is the Lord? That is Yahweh. That is Yahweh. That's the Tetragrammaton. That is the holy name of God. Okay? When this name was written, when the scribes were translating the Bible, when they came to this word, they would get up, shed their clothing, bathe themselves, put on fresh clothing, and write the name of God. It was considered unclean to write God's name without being, without being holy, without being clean. For we are to be holy as God is holy. Now you take that and you think about how we throw God's name around today. God's name is anything but holy. And we will answer for that. Because the Bible says we'll answer for every idle word that we've spoken. He's also called God. Right? What is God? It's another name for God. You've heard it. You know who it is. Elohim. Elohim. So we have Yahweh and we have Elohim. There's one more name for God and we'll see that later on. What is that name? You remember the other one? The third one? El Shaddai. El Shaddai. So you have three names for God. They're all written differently in the Bible. And so if you have a, a lexicon where you can see what the names are, like, like I do with my Bible, I can, I, can, I can touch the word, I can touch the word and it becomes the Greek. So I can see what it, I can see what it means. So I can differentiate between Yahweh, El Shaddai, and Elohim. They're all three the names of God. One is a more common parlance, one is a little is more holy, and then the other one is the strictly holy name of God. So Is it possible when we get to Pharaoh and Pharaoh says, well, I don't know the Lord. I don't know Yahweh. That maybe he could have heard his name in a different different context. Maybe he heard El Shaddai. We don't know. But he had the benefit of the historical record from that. And even though it says there was a Pharaoh that arose that knew not Joseph, that Pharaoh is dead. This is now the Moses of the Exodus. When they get to him, this is the one who, this is the one who took the place of the one who had, the one who had died, and so. Egypt is a land of many gods, and Moses just wants to be clear as an excuse. Well, who shall I say? Who shall I tell them sent me? And we talked about that last week. We talked about the I am, the great I am, the existent one, the pre-existent one, the one who always has been. What's his third excuse? Down around verse, uh, in chapter 4. Go to chapter 4. And we'll bypass the fact that he's going to gather the, the, the elders together first. He doesn't gather the people first. I think that's another point that people just kind of go by. I don't want to spend a lot of time on that, but you go back and read it. He goes to the elders first before he goes to the people. Okay? And talks to them. So let's go to chapter 4 and move along. And chapter 4, verse 1, he says, what, what will happen? They won't believe me. Well, what can we do to help Moses' lack of faith 
in God to deliver his people, what can we do for him? What can we do to Moses? What does God do for Moses? First thing he asks him, well, we're going to give you some we're going to give you some things that are going to make them believe. And we're going to do three things, right? What's the first? Staff and throw it on the ground. Now, let's talk about that for a second because that here again, this is something people What does the staff represent? Moses is 80 years old. How many 80-year-old people do you know that need a staff, a cane, some kind of a help to get them along? As older people, not uncommon. What does the staff represent? No, in a physical sense, what does the, what does the staff represent? What, what did he do for a living? He's a shepherd. It's a shepherd's crook, right? Or it's a shepherd. It's a shepherd's staff. Not necessarily a crook, but I mean that's what we commonly see. But it, it's a staff. It's to help him. It's to help him protect the sheep. It's to help him. Uh, it's to help him stand up. He's 80 years old. I mean, come on. I don't know many 80-year-olds that can get around, and I'm. I don't, Mike's probably the only one that's 80 that I know. I just, I just he doesn't have a cane. He doesn't have a staff. But when I get to 80, I may have to have one of those hurry canes, one of those little four-legged things that get you around. I don't know. Well, he he probably had the staff as much for age. Let's be let's be honest. He probably had it as much for age as for being a shepherd. But the key here is the staff is, is something that a shepherd carries. David had one there, there for fighting the animals off and, and doing other sundry things, poking under rocks and things like that, you know. So God tells Moses, do what? Throw it on the ground. And the staff turns into a... And what is a snake with regard to Egypt? It is the symbol of Pharaoh. You look on any look on any stele, go home and Google Egyptian steles, go home and Google Egyptian pharaohs, and to a person, every pharaoh that's wearing either the crown of the north or the south kingdom has a snake on the top of his head. It is the symbol of his majesty. It is the symbol of the fact that he is a god, Lord G. So what is God saying to Moses? When you throw that staff on the ground... The shepherd becomes the king. The shepherd becomes God. And in this case, the shepherd becomes God's helper, or God is with him. Okay? Certainly. Certainly. So, he's scared of the snake, as any wise individual is. I watch these shows where these guys handle snakes all the time. I saw a guy on TV the other night handling a black mamba. I think that's one of the world's most, if it's not a crate or one of the other, it's one of the most poisonous snakes in the world. Guys just handle it like it was nothing. That thing would have bit me so many times. <laughs> I don't like snakes. I got chased by a black garter snake one time. And I, I'm, I'm not afraid to tell you I ran like a 13-year-old girl. Okay, I do not like snakes. I know you have a picture in your mind now. That's all right. You just live with that. That'll be one of the few ones you get. That and rodents. Don't like rodents. Rodent in the house, got to get somebody else to help you because Phil's going to be on the counter <laughs> screaming like a girl. Sorry. Not to say anything bad about the girls. Sorry. It was just me. All right. What's the next sign? So he gives him a physical sign that he is going to be a god to Pharaoh because of the things he's going to do. He's going to do acts of God. By throwing, that, by throwing that staff down and it becoming a serpent, 
he is signifying to Moses that he is going from a shepherd to a monarch. All right, what's the second thing? Put your hand inside your... And draw it out, and what was the hand? It was leprous. Now, you stop and think about that one for a second. What did the Egyptian people, as a general rule, according to all of the the translations that I've seen, various Egyptian documents, what did they fear more than anything else? Leprosy. In fact, in their accounts of the Exodus, that is why they drove the people out. They drove the people out because of this dreaded disease. And it is a dreaded disease that we have, for the most part, conquered today. There are some still people with fascist leprosii. There are still some people who have leprosy today, but for the most part, it's been eradicated. I don't think anybody here knows anybody that has leprosy. I mean, if you do, that's fine. But most of us don't know or haven't even seen, if it's not in the medical journal, what leprosy even looks like. But leprosy in those days was a disease to be avoided because you couldn't go down to the urgent care clinic and get some antibiotics to take care of it. If you got it, you got it. And if you're following in the uh, Lehman Learner every day, he just spent a whole section the day before yesterday or the day before that talking about leprosy and how dreaded it is. It was the most dreaded disease in the Egyptian catalog of diseases. It was something they could not do anything about. They could not get a potion or a lotion or anything to put on it that would make it go away. They were deathly afraid of leprosy. And so in that case, Moses putting his hand into his jacket represented the children of Israel possibly, represented the children of Israel surrounded by the Egyptians. That's certainly one scholar's way of looking at that. And then when he withdrew his hand, or he put his hand back in again and drew it out, what was it? It was white as snow. It was white as snow. When someone is cured of leprosy, their skin is said to be white as snow. When Jesus cleanses us of our sin and the dross in our life, What is it said to make us? What does the song say? It makes us white as snow. I think one of the most profound illustrations in the Bible, for me at least, and it may not be for you, but for me at least, is in the book of Revelation, which they're studying over in the other class. In the book of Revelation, it says that Jesus is riding on a horse, and his horse or his his garment is dipped in blood. But when that garment is dipped in blood, how does it come out? What does the writer say? When when it's dipped in his blood, what does it come out? It comes out white as snow. Now think think about that. How many of us have ever gotten blood on our clothing? You ever gotten blood on your clothing? How hard is that to get out, first of all, for those of you who do laundry? Very hard. There's always a stain. There's always, a, there's always a, uh, some kind of a remnant left. But when Jesus dips our sinful bodies in his blood, we're whiter than snow. What's his last excuse? Hmm? I'm not an eloquent man. Again, look what Stephen says in Acts 7, verse 22. Put that out in the margin of your Bible. When Moses said, I'm not an eloquent man, I'm slow of speech, what does Stephen say about Moses? In Acts 7, verse 22, he was mighty in word and
and indeed. Well, that seems like a bit of a contradiction. I wonder who's right. Stephen is probably right, because Moses is making an excuse. What's our excuse today? When people ask us, well, why don't you have a Bible study with that person? Why don't you go and talk to that person about the church? What's our excuse sometimes? Oh, well, I don't know enough about the Bible. I'm not eloquent. I, I can't put the sentences together. I can't put the, I can't put the phraseology together to, to convert someone. I, I, do more damage. I do more damage than good. If I explode here in just a minute, I don't know, but that, don't know what that was. But I'm not an eloquent man. I think at this point, and this is just my personal belief, I think Moses is downplaying his abilities. Again, false humility. Again, being something or trying to be something that he's really not, just to get out of this. It's not a, it's not a final excuse, but God says, who's made man's mouth in verse 11 of chapter 4? Who's made the deaf, the mute, the seeing, the blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Yahweh. But he said, now I'll go, and I will be your mouth, and I will teach you what to speak. And then in verse 13, Moses makes one final plea. And in here, he uses the word Adonai, which is the fourth. There's, I think there's five names of God, and that's the fourth. I think the, the fourth one we've used, Adonai, which means my Lord. It's a proper name for God. What does he ask him to do? Final gambit. His, his final gambit to get out of this. What does he say? Please send somebody else. Please send somebody else. You know, we have, we have three preachers. We have elders. Can't we send them? That's not what God told us. That's not what God's told us to do. It's not the preacher's responsibility. It's not the elder's responsibility. It's all of us as Christians. It's all of our responsibilities. And we can't make excuses. We can't say, I'm, I'm slow of tongue. What, 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 was, what did Paul say about his infirmity? God struck him with, a, with an, an infirmity. And we, and we don't know what that is, but it very well could have something to do with the light on the road to Damascus. I don't know. There are several times that he writes, he has to write in big letters. Was it some kind of a, a, an eye problem, some kind of an opth ophthalmic disorder that he had? I don't know what it was. But I do know that he begged God how many times? Three times. Take this away from me. And what did God say? That's right. He said, my grace is sufficient for you. But first thing he said was, no. No, I'm not going to do that. Because my grace is sufficient for you. You're exactly correct. God's grace is sufficient to cover all of the excuses, to cover all of the infirmities that we have. I'm too old to do that. I'm not talented enough to do that. I don't want to do that. Be careful with your excuses, because you'll have to answer for all of them, for why you didn't. Why you didn't speak to that person at the gas station, why you didn't speak to that person at the grocery store about Jesus. Why you went on that trip, and you were away from your family, and it was just you traveling. And maybe you made some bad decisions while you were away. God is not the God of excuse. He does not want excuses. He just wants our humble service. Okay? My grace is sufficient for you. 
Philippians 4.13, he says that Christ strengthens me. And if you're not an excuse maker, God's going to use you for great things. may not be great in your eyes. may not be great in your eyes. Send another. Paul said in 2 Corinthians 12 and 10, my weakness makes me strong. In my weakness, I'm made strong. And it's very interesting that if you turn that around, so that was 2 Corinthians 12, 10. If you take 1 Corinthians 10, 12 and just turn it around, what does it say? Beware how you stand lest you fall. So there's that middle ground. In your weakness, God's going to make you strong. But don't think more highly of yourself than you should because you may fall. Pride goes before a fall. Don't rebel against God as Moses did because Moses ended up going. He was the reluctant deliverer. Christ was not Christ was not a reluctant deliverer. In those two things, he differed. Yes, Jesus did say, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. But not my will, but thy will be done. And in everything we do, in everything we say, in every way that we act toward other people, it should be with those words on our lips. Thy will be done, not my will. But unfortunately, we're a very my will driven people. In the business world, my will, my rules, my way or the highway. With respect to God, it's God's way or the highway. All right? So let's jump to chapter five, unless somebody has a comment about something. Um, chapter four sees us at the end. He goes back to, uh, he goes back to Egypt. So we're back in Egypt now. Um, he took the staff of God in his hand. Um, there is an incident that happens along the road there. I'm going to leave that for you all to read and study if you have questions about it. But apparently his son Gershom was not circumcised, and God stood in the road to kill him, him being Moses. And so his wife circumcised, Zipporah circumcised her son, and that's really all. But that incident is in there for a reason. That, that's, just not, that's just not, God just didn't put that in there for filler. God must be obeyed, even in the smallest things. And although we don't have circumcision as a rule today, that's an Old Testament practice, God's will must be done at all times and in everything. I think that's, I think that's really the foundational message that he's driving home there. You can't do God's will if you're not in a state that you're supposed to be in. And I'm not saying sinless, because all of sinning comes short of the glory of God. I know that. But you have to be, in a, you have to be in, a, in a state of being ready to do God's will, and Moses was not ready. And this makes him then completely ready. So now let's go to chapter 5, and we'll talk for a few minutes about who is Jehovah? Who is Yahweh that I should serve him? This is what Pharaoh asked. Who is the Lord? Who is Yahweh that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord. And moreover, I will not let Israel go. Now, at this point in time, four things happen that really encompass all of chapter 5. There's a request 
from God through Moses to Pharaoh, right? Second thing is there's a reply from Pharaoh to Moses, and there's a result that comes from that reply, and then there's resentment at the end of the chapter over the decision that was made. So what is the request that Moses makes of Pharaoh? Says, let my, in verse 1, he says, let my people go. That what? That what? They're gonna, he wants them to go so that they can make a feast in the wilderness. Let my people go. And then he, he expands on that in verse 3. Look at verse 3. The God of the Hebrews has met with us. Okay, again, the God of the Hebrews. Let me see what God of the Hebrews, that should be, yeah, it's Elohim in this case. The God of the Hebrews, Elohim has met with us. Let us go what? Let us go where? Three days. Well, we're not talking about the Exodus right here. We're just talking about a very simple request. Let us go three days into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God, lest he fall upon us with pestilence or with a sword. Okay? Is this a reasonable request? Going to go three days into the wilderness, sacrifice to God, and ostensibly come back. That's all he's asking. He's making a very, he's making a very small, very reasonable request to Pharaoh. Just let my people go into the desert, desert three days, into the wilderness, to make sacrifice to our God. That seems to be a reasonable request. But not to Pharaoh. But not to Pharaoh, because he doesn't know who Jehovah is. Who is this Jehovah? Well, over the next few chapters, he's going to find out who Jehovah is. And by the end of all this, he could avoid, he could have avoided a lot of problems if he would have just let the people go. Now, what's to say the people wouldn't have gone into the wilderness and just skedaddled out? We don't know. But God makes a very reasonable request through Moses to Pharaoh. Let my people go into the wilderness three days and let them sacrifice. Right. Well, which of these, which of these many gods, which of these many gods is the one you worship? I mean, this is like Paul on Mars Hill. Right? It's like Paul on Mars Hill. Paul said, you know, I, as I was walking over here today, I saw all these gods. And there are so many gods that to avoid missing anyone, they had, a, they had one that was to the unknown god. And the unknown God was the, Paul was, was the one that Paul was going to talk to him about. The unknown God. Well, as we get to the part where the plagues start, and we tar- start talking about all the different gods that God manifested plagues against, you're going to see that these, these gods of the Egyptians that he manifested the plagues against were the major gods. He knocked, every, he knocked, a, knocked a, the slats out from every one of them. But notice, as we concluded chapter 4, as we concluded chapter 4, the very last verse, and the people believed. So when Moses went to the elders and then he went to the people, the people believed that when they heard the Lord had visited the people of Israel that had seen their affliction, they bowed their heads and worshipped. Now, contrast that against the last few verses of chapter 5, which we'll see in just a second if we get to it. I think we will. It's very different. So in one chapter, the whole tenor of the children of Israel's attitude changes, okay? So, requirement of God, a request, a request of God through Moses. Three days, let my people go, and we will worship. 
Notice that things are beginning to change. In the patriarchy, it was families making sacrifice, right? Think about Abraham. Think about all of the people who sacrificed Job. In the patriarchy, all those people were sacrificing as a family. Now what are we asked? Now what are they being asked to do? They're asked to being sacrificed as a people. And this is the first time somebody mentioned last week, this is, their, this is the first time they're being referred to as a people. So now sacrifice must be at the people level, not at the family level. Okay? Very important. Yes, sir? So he's given, he's given, a, he's given a little preview. This is, this is going to this, this is going to happen. Now we can do it the easy way, or if you, if you force my hand, we'll do it the hard way, but we're going to do it. This is going to get done. So who is Jehovah? Well, Pharaoh replies, who is Jehovah? Maybe he didn't know him by that name. But he was certainly the strong man in this case. And Jesus alludes to the fact that there's a strong man in the house and a stronger than the strong man has come, speaking of himself. And so God asks through Moses an extremely, what seems to be an extremely reasonable request, and Pharaoh denies it. But notice the end of that verse 3. He's going to visit us with pestilence and with a sword. Now that's not that's not just the Israelite people he's going to visit. He's going to visit he's going to visit the Egyptians with pestilence. And he's going to visit the Egyptians with the sword. The angel of death is going to visit. And so we see as a result of this request that's made of Pharaoh and Pharaoh's ultimate response which is well your people are just lazy. And I was looking for that stele this week. I could not find it. If I find it, I'll bring it in and put it on. The... There is a stele in Egypt or in one of the museums. It's a stele of an Egyptian with a cane in his hand, and he's got it raised up over some people who are bowing down. And I wanted to bring that in to show you that how they punish. They were talking about beating. They're talking about beating the Hebrews. And if you're familiar with how the Egyptians would do that, they would make the person lie on their stomach. Okay? They'd lie on their stomach and they would bend their knees up where their palms of their the palms, the heel, the soles of their feet were in the air like this. Okay? And then they would beat the soles of their feet with rods. Till they couldn't walk. And so there is a cartouche or a carving underneath that, underneath that picture of the Egyptian beating a slave people. There's a cartouche under that that reads, the rod is in my hand, do not be idle. The rod is in my hand, do not be idle. The Egyptians, among everything else, were extremely intolerant of laziness, of idleness. And is this not why Pharaoh said two times to Moses, your people are idle, your people are idle. Let the beatings commence. And so not only now do they have to gather the stuff to make bricks, they have to gather their own straw. So he's made their work even harder. He's made their work even even more difficult. So we get down to verse 10. 
He's already told them, I'll no longer give you straw. You've got to go gather that for yourself. So that adds to their labors. And so the taskmasters and the foremen go out to the people and they say, we will not give you straw. We will not give you straw. Go and get the straw for yourself. In verse 17, you are idle, you are idle. That is why you say, let us go and sacrifice to the Lord. So he gives the reason for why he's doing what he's doing, and the result is there is resentment against Moses and Aaron. Look what they say to Moses and Aaron when they come out. Verse 21, or verse 22, as they leave the presence of Pharaoh, where he's given this this additional work, the the leaders of the, the working people for the Hebrews... Moses and Aaron meet them. I don't know if they were waiting outside to have a, a, a visit with the Pharaoh or what, where they were just coming toward the, where they were, and, and they came out, as they came out to meet Pharaoh, there was Moses and Aaron waiting for them. And they said to them, Moses and Aaron, the Lord look on you and judge because you have made us, what's the word your Bible has there? What's the word your Bible has there? Several translations of this. Abhorrent. Huh? Abhorrent, okay. Some, some versions of the Bible say uh, the, the saver. The saver, this version that I'm reading, which is the English standard, says uh, has made a stink in the sight of Pharaoh. Stench, yeah. Odious, okay, yeah. So there's a, there's a savor, there's a smell that's going up. And anyone who's um, anyone who's had the the pleasure of driving by a skunk that's been run over, one of our little black and white friends has been run over, we, you know about that savor. You know about that savor. And there are things that you can do. I know that was the last bell, but I wanted to make this point. Um, you ever clean a cat box? I had to clean a cat box one time when I was a kid. And I thought the best way to clean it would be to pour all the cat litter out and pour some bleach in there, because surely that would, that, would kill all that. that would kill all that cat smell. Well, what happens when you put ammonia from urine in with bleach? It's a savor that you never forget. Okay? Made my eyes water. Hot poisonous gas is what it was, but... So anyway, that word savor, very, very important savor, very, very important word to smell. They've made us, you've made us to stink in Pharaoh's sight, and now he's given us all this work. We'll pick up there next week, and good Lord willing, we'll be back together. Thank you.